Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right today? This rainy Sunday morning. Man, the fact that you got up today and you said, hey, it's raining, there's no better place to be than in church. I commend you for that. We never take it for granted. When you choose to spend part of your Sunday here with us at Generations Church, so whether you're here in person or welcome to those of you that are watching online today, we just want to say welcome and thank you so much for being here. It's going to be a really great uh, day today as we tackle some, some tough things. We continue in tackling some tough things. But man, let me just commend you again on your worship. I do that from time to time. I don't do that every Sunday because some Sundays really your worship is not. No, I'm just kidding. It's great. It's always great. But man, you guys sounded great today. You just, I mean, the, the room was filled with worship. And if you're watching on, at home uh, or, or at, on your job or on a device while you're going somewhere or you're maybe on vacation this week, we just, you missed it in the room, but hopefully you still felt the same presence and power of God wherever you're watching from today because I just was so moved by your worship today. So thank you for that. Uh, you, you heard Pastor Trevor mention a couple things <clears throat> that I just want to hit again because they're really important to us. Next week's a really special day for us. It's called Vision Sunday. We do this every year, every fall. We've done it the last couple of years um, where we just kind of pause again just to look and see what is God doing and what is God wanting to do. And uh, in this season of uncertainty and in the, the, the climate that we find ourselves in in so many different places in our life, I do believe that God wants to speak to us, not just for our church, but for you individually about what he's desiring to do in this next season of time. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit, and so I hope you'll be here with us next Sunday for Vision Sunday. You'll get some updates as well uh, about what God has done, but I hope you'll be here for that. We're also going to baptize people next Sunday, which I love to do, and so I would love the honor of baptizing you. So if, if you've recently made a first-time decision to follow Jesus Christ, or maybe you've made what we call a rededication uh, of your life to, to Jesus Christ, we would love for you just to go to our website, register, and be baptized next Sunday as a personal testimony of what God has done privately in your heart and in your life, and we just want to celebrate that with you. And then in two weeks on November the 8th, everybody say November the 8th. Some of you were with me, some of you weren't, but November the 8th, we're starting a brand new series kind of leading up through the rest of the month of November uh, called Thanks Living. And we're really going to just, just understand what, what it is that we have to be thankful for, again, in this, this climate. I, I don't want everything to have this negative tone. I really want us to kind of refocus our attention and our heart on what we have to be thankful for. And uh, so we're going to look at it from a little different perspective. We'll start that on November the 8th. But today, we are concluding what we started last week, this two-week conversation around the idea of the kingdom of God. In the, in the current landscape, you don't have to look very far. You can look on the news, you can look on your social media outlets, and you can see all of the divisiveness that exists because of the political climate that we find ourselves in. And we talked about that a little bit last week, that it is a divisive world right now. It's a divisive country that we live in. And so what are we called to do? What are we called to be in the midst of that divisiveness? We said for followers of Jesus Christ, which if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are exempt from what I'm about to say, but you're obviously welcome here. That for followers of Jesus Christ, we say, hey, we're called to be people of unity. We're called to find those things that are non-negotiables and to contend for them, to fight for them. But we are also called to recognize that not everything is a non-negotiable. So once we've determined the non-negotiables, then we have to be people that are people of unity, that love those who hate us and persecute us and disagree with us and vote differently than us to really contend for unity in all things because that was the prayer that Jesus prayed for us as followers of Jesus Christ in John 17. And so that's what we really looked at last week. But we also said that we are seeking first his kingdom 
And then secondly, we're seeking the kingdoms of the world, and we're, we're seeking other things, but we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what we declared last week is that as we seek first his kingdom, that there are going to be people that hate us for that. They hate us for that declaration. And Jesus understood that as well. If anybody understood it, it was Jesus. And he said this in John 15, 19. He said, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. And so if you feel like, man, everybody around me hates me, welcome to the club. Jesus experienced that too. And so once we declare that, then we recognize that not everybody's going to see eye to eye with us on all of the things that we say are non-negotiables in our life. But the challenge today, and what we're really going to spend some time on, is that it's not just about declaring citizenship in the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of this world. It is also recognizing that, that we have a responsibility to play. There is personal responsibility at play in our lives. Corey and I were able this week to do some early voting. Uh, not some. We didn't vote multiple times. Vote early and often, right? That's what we want you to do. But uh, no, we went and voted. And... Um, you know, I, I did kind of, when my mom turned 16, she was married very young. She got married at 16. Uh, my kids feel like I grew up in the days when everything was black and white. Uh, some of you feel like I'm very, very young. Others of you feel like I'm ancient, and I'm somewhere in the middle of that. But my mom, she, she was, you know, kind of like Little House on the Prairie almost. She, she was married when she was 16, and so my dad taught her how to drive, and then he took her to get her driver's license at the DMV. And so she got into the car, and she pulled out of the parking lot, and the instructor, the person that was giving her the test, said, Miss Isaacs, you can turn around. You've already failed. You just ran the stop sign, leaving the parking lot. And so she went back. She was devastated. But in that day and age when computers weren't, you know, as readily available and they weren't connected all together, they just went down the road to the next DMV. She took the test again that day and she passed. Well, I kind of felt like that as I was going to vote. Like I passed one precinct for early voting and it looked like everybody and their brother was standing in line. I was like, I'm not waiting that long. And so I went to the next one and it was a shorter line. And so we stood in line and we voted. And I'm so thankful for the privilege to vote and what we said last week is we want you to vote, and we're going to talk about that today, but we believe that people have given their lives, men and women have given their lives so that you and I have a voice. And there are people around this world right now in the places that they live, they do not have that opportunity. And so I would say, take advantage of that opportunity and be a part of the process. And when you're a part of the process, I believe it gives you the, the credibility to speak to things that you agree and disagree with. If you're not a part of the process, it's really difficult for me to listen to you as you voice the things that you disagree with in our country. Now, if you don't have the right to vote, I understand that. But if you do, I encourage you to vote. So we went this week and we voted. And I was thankful that we were able to do that because as citizens of the United States, I believe that's a part of our responsibility, even as we recognize our citizenship in the kingdom of God. But I also know that when you go to vote, you are deciding between two or three or in one case here, in our community, a number of candidates. And so you have to determine, where am I affiliating myself? And so I want to spend a few minutes talking even about party affiliation. Like, we're going to go there, okay? I want us to talk a little bit and dig in today to party affiliation and platforms. But before we do that, I thought I would share with you this like top 10 list. I know David Letterman, this just speaks to my age. David Letterman used to be a guy that gave top 10 lists all the time. My, my friend, Pastor J.C. Worley, who's actually spoken here at our church, several months ago, he preached on the idol of politics, and he came up with a top 10 list of 10 ways, 10 warning signs that politics has become an idol in your life. I thought this was really good, so I stole this from him. So if you get mad about anything that I say, I'll give you his email address, and you can email him, okay? 10 warning signs that politics has become an idol in your life. Number one, when you allow politics to steal your joy. 
It happens. Number two, when you blame all of society's problems on the other party's candidates. Number three, when you side with your political party on every issue without thinking through a biblical perspective. Number four, when you can name 12 politicians, but you can't name 12 disciples. Come on, somebody. Come on, I always forget. Is Bartholomew a disciple? I can't remember. So I got to think there about that one. Number five, when you spend more time thinking about or listening to politics than you spend in God's word and prayer. Ouch. Number six, when you judge someone's level of commitment to Jesus once you learn of their political affiliation. Number seven, when you make excuses for why you support certain politicians or even platforms, even though you may know that potentially it's ungodly. Number eight, when you pray for a politician, but your only prayer is that they win or lose. Not necessarily for their soul, just that they win or lose. Number nine, when you're more concerned about the next four years than about eternity. And number 10, when you're offended because of any of the statements I just made, right? If you get mad, remember, I'm going to give you Pastor JC's email address. But I really did think that that was such a great list, but maybe you wouldn't call it an idol, but potentially politics has become so elevated in our minds and in our hearts that it consumes our thoughts, and it becomes so much of what we spend our, our energy and our anxiousness about that we've lost the true sense of perspective. So let's dig in today and let's talk about our personal responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of God while we're citizens here of this earthly kingdom. But to do so, I want us to look back briefly. This is not a history lesson, but this is a, a recognition that where we are as a nation is not unique to us. So our, our country was founded in 1776. It's almost 250 years ago. And our forefathers, they had so much wisdom. They didn't get it all right, but they got a lot of it right because they shaped a more perfect union to allow it to be governed then, but also for us to have the flexibility to adapt and evolve and change to be able to govern ourselves 250 years later with all of the advances of humanity over that 250 years. And again, they didn't get it all right for sure. They got a lot of it right though. And about 50 years after its formation was when the Democratic Party was founded. And then about 25 years after that, the Republican Party was founded. And by and large, these are the two parties that have really dominated the landscape of the political conversations of our nation for the last 175 years or so. And what's interesting, if you do read, which I love to read, and I love to read about history, if you do read about these two parties, they have actually switched positions a couple of times on some of their anchor positions right now. Some of the things that are staunchly Republican used to be Democratic positions, and some of the things that are staunchly Democratic used to be Republican positions, if you read throughout history. And so over the last 175 years or so, these two parties have existed to really gather your affinity and to really seek yours and your, your ancestors' uh, love and affection towards their position and their platform. And so as you would do that, you would begin to vote a specific way. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that at all. That's just how we have navigated these last 175 years or so. But here's what we know. The two-party system, it won't last and it can't last, and all you have to do is look at world history to recognize that. Over the last 240-ish years or so of this last great experiment, in the words of George Washington in 1790, we recognize that we have been a little bit limited in that there's really just two platforms to help us to try to navigate what it is that we believe and what it is that we hold to be most important. And if you look across the landscape of world history, 
you can see what used to have maybe one or two platforms in certain places that had similar structures of government to us. They continued to expand and evolve to try to include as many different opinions as they could because two-party systems tend to not be able to sustain throughout history. You don't have to look much farther than the United Kingdom. You look to Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is where we declared our independence from, right? And so we recognize that this nation, this kingdom whether you kind of point to one of several dates throughout its history, is either several hundred years older than us or several thousand years older than us. You can go to the Roman rule of 43 AD. You can look at the treaties that were signed and the establishment of different governments in like 1066 and 1603 and 1707. So you see all of these different places that the government was beginning to be formed there in Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Well, in their current structure of government, there are not just two parties, though two definitely still hold a place of value in their society, they have 10 different parties represented in their House of Commons, which is somewhat similar to what we have as the Congress. 10 different parties. And so when you look at that idea of 10 different parties represented, what you see is that in their kingdom, they have about 420 different recognized parties because there are so many different opinions that have kind of been created over the last several hundred or even several thousand years in a nation that's older than our last great experiment of 240-ish years or so. You start with one or two options, and then you begin to see that people take on different ideas and different thoughts, and people are able to articulate a little more easily what it is that we actually believe. And so uh, a faction begins to buy into this idea and this idea, and they can no longer fit neatly into two specific differing opinions. And so when we think about what we are left with here in the United States, we are left really with about two options. Now, obviously, there's third-party candidates and sometimes fourth and fifth and sixth-party candidates. And when you look at the United States, there are several thousand recognized parties. But when you look at those that are actually governing both locally and nationally, it is dominated by one of two choices. And so here's a really challenging question. Maybe it's not as challenging as I think. Here's the question for all of us today. Perhaps even as you are firmly entrenched on the left or firmly entrenched on the right, we come to this filtering question. Can you or can I definitively say that the views of our preferred party encapsulate all of what we believe a Christian should care about? Can we say that the views of any preferred party, whether you're on the right or the left, encapsulate all of what we believe a Christian should care about? And the answer to that question is most likely no. Because neither Republican nor Democrats can speak with absolute conviction and integrity to the Christian perspective. And here's why. Because even among Christians, there is disagreement about some of these issues. Now, I said this last week, and it's worth repeating. There are people in this room who are going to vote for Donald Trump. And there are also people in this room who are going to vote for Joe Biden. But the greater declaration of those lives for those that have have talked to me about it is that in each of those cases, the greater declaration is that they are in pursuit of a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And as they try to filter through what it is that they believe and how they will vote among the choices that they have, they are trying to determine what is a non-negotiable And what things are negotiable, but I just don't have another choice, and so I'm left to decide which I value more highly than other things. So here's where we're going to get really specific just for a moment. And let me just remind you that last week at the beginning of the message, I asked you to give me grace because I'm not here to try to offend you. I'm not here to try to say something that's just 
only about inciting an emotional response. I promise you I'm not. I just want to dig down into this and see what we may discover. There are some that the singular most important issue is abortion. And when I say that word, it may seem jarring in a room like this. But the single most important issue is abortion. Many believe that their vote must incorporate a pro-life candidate and platform that would lean to appoint judges and establish laws that make abortion illegal or at the very least less accessible than it currently is. And potentially anything and everything else is negotiable, but not this issue. And if you believe that, and there are many of us in the room, if you believe that, I respect that. There are others in this room who are also pro-life, and they don't disagree about abortion, but they look at pro-life as a broader conversation. They've expressed that they are against the death penalty because they don't believe it's the government's right to take life from one of its own citizens. They believe that government should provide health care and assistance to any and all who need it to ensure their livelihood. And so pro-life for them potentially is a broader conversation. And they agree about abortion, but they choose a different platform because of its encompassing of other ideals. So you see how I just painted with a very broad brush? There is no way for us to try to truly encapsulate all of what we would perceive as a Christian perspective in either of the two party platforms that exist before us. And so we're left to try to determine What is it that we believe? Now, here's what you need to know about our church. We believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that life is a gift from God. He he started that in the creation story as he breathed his life into what he had formed of humanity. And so pre-cradle all the way through the grave, we value the life of every single individual, no matter their age, their race, their gender. We believe they matter to God, and so they matter to us. And so how do we filter these things through what it is that we would believe from God's word? Because as we look at the two options, it appears that there is some wiggle room back to the middle. There are some of these things that we pull from and we would believe about both sides of some of these issues. And so who do you vote for from the middle? What is the biblical position on immigration? What is the biblical position on welfare and social programs? What is the biblical position on taxation and economic issues? Well, as I read through the Bible, some of those things may not be specifically spelled out, but then others of them are scattered throughout the pages of the Old Testament, even into the New. Jesus was a Jew who escaped to Africa to avoid the death that was prescribed by the king, and he returned to the Middle East to do ministry. The Bible teaches that we will be judged by how well we take care of widows and orphans, and Jesus told his disciples to render unto Caesar what was Caesar's. These issues are scattered throughout Scripture, and so what are we as Christ followers to do? I would say to you today, and not to let you off the hook, but also to extend the same grace to you that I try to extend to myself. When I'm reading through these issues and listening to these debates, if you could call them that, we just do the best that we can do. We don't filter it through commercials and ads. We don't filter it through 30-second talking points. We attempt to the very best of our ability to filter it through God's Word and what God is speaking to each of us as we are in pursuit of Him. There is no way that either party can accurately reflect the biblical view of every issue before us. There's no way that Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Mitt Romney or Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or even George W. Bush or whoever will run in the next election can either. And here's why. Psalm 146. 
Verse 1 through 10 says this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise him as long as I live, and I will sing to my God all my life. Don't put your trust in human leaders. No human being can save you. When they die, they return to the dust. And on that day, all their plans come to an end. Happy are those who have the God of Jacob to help them and who depend on the Lord their God, the creator of heaven and earth, and see and all that is in them. He always keeps his promises. He judges in favor of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free and gives sight to the blind. He lifts those who have fallen. He loves his righteous people. He protects the strangers who live in our land. He helps widows and orphans, but takes the wicked to their ruin. The Lord is king forever. Your God, O Zion, will reign for all time. There's three things that I see in this passage of Scripture. The first is that every politician will eventually fail us. Every single politician will eventually fail us. We see that in verse 3. The second thing that I see is that there is no political leader more powerful than God. It is not about who will be elected president. It is, is he the king of my heart? And third, the Lord is forever king. He doesn't have to run for re-election. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever according to God's word. And so we stand on the truths of God's word and we hold to the truths that say God is the forever king. He will not let us down and he speaks to the things that we are experiencing. And so how do we determine what it is that he's saying to us? I'm not accountable to Republican or Democrat. I'm not accountable to Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anyone that's run before them or anyone that is running after them. I'm only accountable for me. And this is what Jesus said about me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are salt. We are salt. When I was growing up, I used to hear that phrase, oh, they're just salt of the earth people. And it almost sounded like we were saying they're just common folk. Oh, they're just salt of the earth. But Jesus said about us that we were salt. There's a calling on our life to flavor the relationships and the conversations that we're a part of because we're made of a different substance, not because of what we do, but because of who we believe in and who we have put our trust and our hope in. We are the salt of the earth. One of the reasons that I believe that Christ followers should vote is because we should add flavor to the conversation of our country. We should put our perspective in the mix. We are the salt of the earth. And if we lose our saltiness, we're good for nothing. If there's nothing that separates us or differentiates us in the way that we behave from anyone else who is not a Christ follower, then we are not different. We are the same. And so we are called to be salt. And not only are we called to be salt, we're called to be light. You're the light of the world. And as the light of the world, here's what he says. He said, this is a dark world and you don't hide your light. You shine your light. And in doing so, you point people through your good deeds to your father in heaven. And as I've been reading through this as this reminder all week long, I came up with two questions for me. Perhaps they would mean something to you today as well. 
What taste am I leaving in people's mouths with the conversations that I'm having right now? If I'm salt, what taste am I leaving in people's mouths? When I walk away, do they care more about what I said or how I made them feel? My fear for a lot of us right now is that, have you ever eaten something that was too salty? Right? I have. And so it's not that you tamp down who you are and that you tamp down your witness and tamp down what you believe, but it is that you sprinkle it into the conversations in the ways that God has made the other person receptive in that moment. And so we got through, through discernment, we say, God, what is it I would say here that would be edifying to you and edifying and encouraging to this other person? How could I encourage them and point them to you through the conversation that I'm having right now, through the way that I'm living my life right now? Let me be salt. Let me add flavor to this conversation, to this relationship, so that when I walk away, they're not like, man, I hate that guy. Man, I can't stand that girl. They go, no, man, there's something that I'm going to be thinking about. That, that echoes what I believe has been happening in my heart and in my soul and my spirit. I can't even explain it, but there's, there's this continuation that I want to seek out as light are my words and deeds pointing people to Jesus right now? This filtering question that says, if, if I'm the light of the world and my good deeds are, are meant to point people to Jesus and not to me, are my words and deeds pointing people to Jesus right now? In this season, this is how we differentiate ourselves. That we shine light on the things that need light. And we use salt to change the conversation and to reflavor the conversation and relationships around us, but we do so in a way that points people to Jesus. And so here's three final thoughts for all of us that are Christ followers in the room, or maybe even if you're not, you're in search of something, in search of absolute truth, in search of the stability that may come from the peace that God promises to us. Three thoughts in these final nine days before the election and perhaps even beyond. If we're citizens of the kingdom, how should we act? If we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven and not just the kingdom of the earth, how should we act? The first thing is we should forgive more than we fight. We should forgive more than we fight. Jesus said that they would know that we are his disciples by how we love. He said that we could forgive because we have first been forgiven. It should be a reflection of what we received from God so we forgive more than we fight. Can we do that in this season? Can we forgive those who've hurt us? Can we forgive those who disagree with us? Can we forgive those that sit around our Thanksgiving tables that disagree with us on every issue and every platform and every policy and every candidate? Can we forgive more than we fight? The second thing is that we pray more than we post. We pray more than we post. I love the story of Abraham Lincoln, who had a practice that whenever he wanted to confront someone, whenever he was angry, and he just wanted to tell somebody, like, he just wanted to give somebody what for. You know what I'm talking about? Like, he just needed to get it out. He would sit down at his desk, and he would write them a letter until he had gotten all of the emotion out of him that he was experiencing. And then he would take that letter, and he would put it in his drawer, and he would come back the next morning and read it. And if he still felt like he should send it, then he would sign it and send it. But if he woke up the next morning, which is what usually happened, and he recognized, hey, I just needed to get this out of me, and this is not the proper way to address this issue, not the proper way to speak to someone, he would sign it this way, never signed, never sent, and he would destroy it. Never signed, never sent. 
I really wish that all of my Facebook posts had that as an option right beside the publish button right there. In this day and age of instantaneous reaction and response, my fear is that we are winning some arguments and losing some influence. That, that we're, we're, we're getting out of us all the emotion that rises up whenever we see them and that person and those people say some of those things and we respond to them instantaneously and we harm our witness and we harm the relationship. We need to pray more than we post. My dad, when I was growing up, and he still repeats it even as, a, as an adult, my dad used to say, and we're a baseball family, and so when I was learning how to hit against kid pitch, that was where the coach had stopped pitching, and that was actually kids out there on the mound. And, you know, some of them weren't great pitchers. They were learning how to pitch just like we were learning how to hit. And so every now and then when they would get two strikes, they were learning how to not throw another strike to see if maybe I would chase a pitch that wasn't actually a strike and give them kind of a free out. So they would throw it off the plate or maybe they would throw it low, they'd throw it in the dirt. And I would swing every time because with two strikes, I was really anxious. I wanted to make sure I didn't strike out. I wanted to get a hit. So anytime I would see it, I would think I can definitely hit that. And I would start to swing and about halfway through my swing, I'd realize, wow, that's really low. And it would be a pitch down in the dirt and I would swing at it and I would strike out. And I remember I would get in the car after the game and my dad would say, hey, you don't swing at a pitch in the dirt. He's not trying to give you a pitch to hit. He's trying to see if you'll chase something that has no value. And now as an adult, my dad will use that illustration. He's used it so many different times in my life. and I've actually started using it with my own kids. Isn't it amazing how that happens? When someone tries to incite me into an argument, when someone says something just to be hurtful and spiteful, when someone says something and they're not trying to actually get into a conversation where maybe we would have the opportunity to have really valuable dialogue, but they're just trying to throw something that I'll swing at so that then we can get into a fight and eventually I'll be out, my dad or my wife or the Holy Spirit will say, we don't swing at pitches in the dirt. The best thing that you could do right now is to unfollow some people and unfriend some people, and unlike some pages, and turn off social media perhaps, and turn off certain channels. And here's the reason, not because there's not value in some of those things, but because there's a lot more pitches in the dirt that are just called to try to call you out, and to try to get you into an argument and incite an angry response from you. And instead of you praying and, and writing it out and getting all of the emotion out and saving it as a draft and coming back to it tomorrow, we click post and instead of never sign, never sent, we put our name to it and we win an argument or two or maybe we don't, but we lose tons of influence and we actually devalue the name of Jesus Christ that we've been aligning ourselves with in the eyes of some of those people who are still searching for him. We need to pray more than we post. And the third thing that we need to do as citizens of the kingdom of heaven is we need to repent more than we react. I said it a little bit last week, but there's an Old Testament scripture that floats around in times like these. And it says that if we will humble ourselves and pray and we'll turn from our wicked ways and God will hear us, he will heal our land. And I believe that scripture as I believe all of scripture. I believe it's God ordained, God breathed for teaching and rebuke and correction. I believe in the word of God. But I think sometimes the context of that scripture is missed. And I believe as much as it is corporate, it is very personal. And so when I find myself praying against other people 
and praying against other things, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit often comes back to me and says, why don't you just start with you? Why don't you humble yourself? And why don't you begin to pray and repent and seek those things inside of you that may not reflect my character and my nature? And why don't you turn from your wicked ways? And then let's see what I can do. It starts with me. And I've quoted my dad a lot today. I guess I need to call him afterwards and tell him he's smarter than I thought he was all my life. Here's the other thing he taught me. It's really hard to hate somebody you're praying for. It's really, really hard to hate somebody you're praying for. And so maybe right now you just think of that person or those people or that candidate or that party or whoever it is in your life that's not even affiliated with politics that you hate. And maybe today we just start and say, God, wherever they're at, would you just touch them right now? Would you let them just experience your love and your forgiveness and your grace in ways that you've extended it to me? And you know what I've seen happen inside of me so many times? The more I pray for them, the more compassion I have toward them, and the more I see some issues inside of me when I've thought that they were the only person with issues. It's really hard to hate somebody you're praying for. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In the next nine days, you're going to hear a lot of crazy things. And I don't know if come election night, like we've had so many other times in our life, I don't know if we'll know the results. It may last a few days or a few weeks or a few months even, which will just extend the conversation. And almost no doubt, depending on who wins, the other side is going to be upset and scream and yell and protest and be angry and, and it extends the conversation. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are salt and we are light. And we are not called to act like everybody else and to talk like everybody else and to sound like everybody else. We are called to flavor the conversations that are going on around us and speak truth but speak it in love and be grace-filled and forgiving and to shine light into dark places so that they see our good deeds and they don't celebrate us but they glorify our Father in heaven. That's what we're called to. To be salt and light. Not Republican or Democrat, salt and light. And that's my hope and that's my prayer for you and it starts with me. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of things. I have prayed all week long. I prayed last week in anticipation of that message that in each of these sermons, each of these messages that I would speak God's word, that in no way would I try to be attacking. I wouldn't try to just get a rise out of you. I wouldn't try to say anything just to get a response from you. That we would just go to God's word. We would just seek to understand. And that's my hope today. I'm asking the Holy Spirit right now just to do a work in our hearts and our lives. And allow us over these next nine days just to reorient our hearts towards the things that breaks God's heart. Towards the things that God is passionate about. 
towards the things that God cares about, and that we would be passionate about the things that are non-negotiables. We would speak up. We would add salt to those conversations and flavor them with the perspective of us in pursuit of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't water down the message. We would shine light into the darkness of the world and that we truly would find a way to express what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives into the political process of this earthly kingdom for as long as God chooses to allow us to be a part of it. But in doing so, we would be kingdoms of God, citizens first. If you would say now, Jeremy, for me, I recognize I am in need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I am not a part of the family of God. I'm not a part of the kingdom of God, and I need to correct that. I need him to forgive my sins and lead my life from this moment forward. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I want to pray for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If you're watching online today, I encourage you to respond, to let us know you've made that decision. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, I just... I want to be a good citizen of the kingdom. I want to make sure that I'm responding in the way that I should, that I've not put my hopes on the back of some political party or candidate, but I've put my hope in King Jesus. And in doing so, I would represent him well in the way that I speak, in the way that I act, in the next nine days and beyond. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. So many hands. If you're watching online, make that commitment with us today. God, I pray today that you would help us to reflect you and your heart for our nation. That you would help us, God, to speak into conversations and speak wisdom into relationships. So many people trying to divide us. God, help us to be people that unite. And God, I pray that you would help us now to be good citizens of the kingdom. And while we are citizens of this earthly kingdom, that we would represent you to the very best of our ability. God, I pray that you would speak to us and speak through us. I pray now for every person that's making a decision to follow after you. They're asking you to forgive their sins and to lead their lives. So God, we celebrate with heaven for those that are making that choice today. And God, now I pray for every person that lifted their hands or responded online to say, I want to be a good citizen of the kingdom of God. Help me to be salt and be light. God, would you help us to do that? Give us wisdom, give us discernment. Help us to pray, help us to repent, help us to forgive well. God, and in doing so, we would represent you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day and God bless.